Terrence has a better haircut than I do, doesn't he? How about that video from China? Wasn't that amazing? I got that just this week. And so we began to talk with each other. And we said, we, we need to show that right away. Could you imagine if you had been asked those questions on the day of your baptism? Right? I mean, those are powerful questions, right? What if your family forsakes you? What if you're persecuted? And yet that's what they face every day uh, there in China. And so we're excited to be able to support those missionaries. So uh, Faith Promise is a huge part of what we do. And uh, so that's why we're talking about it at all of our campuses this weekend. We're going to be talking about it more uh, next weekend. So if you haven't had a chance to fill out one of those cards, uh, and then, then you want to do that. I think they're out there at the info center. I was talking to, uh, to Denise. So you want to get one of those. And God's going to give you a number. And then you're, that's why it's called a Faith Promise. You don't put your name on there. We're not going to call you. It's not a pledge. And uh, God's going to give you a number, and then he's going to provide it. And, and, and when he does, you're, you're making a promise. That you're going to give it to the Faith Promise Initiative, and it, it goes to support missionaries just like that. So I did want to share you a story. This is actually for the 2020 vision, but stories are already starting to roll in. And I hope when your Faith Promise story, your 2020 vision story of God's provision happens, that you share that with us because then we want to share it with you. We take your name out, you know, to protect your anonymity. But we got this one just a few weeks ago. It says, so at the beginning of the year, this is a young lady at our Newport News campus, I received a push notification via text message from my car insurance company reminding me that the automatic withdrawal they were about to make on my account. Now, you already know that you're a young adult just by that first sentence, right? So some of you are like, push notification, what is that? And uh, so, so it says, when I looked down to read the message, I was shocked to see that my monthly payment was about to be cut in half. Now, obviously, the only natural thing you would do in such an instance is to run around your house with your arms straight up in the air, praising God. My father, who works for Geico, found it necessary to teach me in that moment about the system and the way driving records worked. But I was convinced that God designed the system solely for the purpose of me to feel completely overwhelmed with glee at this very moment. Little did I know he, was, he wasn't done yet. Fast forward to today. This is the day I got it. It didn't take long for God to give me a number that I was going to commit to this year's 2020 vision. And as soon as he did, I began to crunch the numbers. Since my budget was set and spent for March, I concluded to start my first recurring payment online at the beginning of April. This gave me nine months to complete the total amount that God had laid on my heart. I took the figure, divided it by nine, and would you be shocked in the slightest if I told you the monthly giving was the exact same that I'd say for my car insurance earlier this year? It's good, isn't it? It's good stuff. And so 2020 vision is a little bit different from Faith Promise. 2020 vision is something that, that we're saying, hey, let's all look at our budget and how can we make a sacrifice to give. And, and we only ask you to do it one time between last year and the end of year. 20. That's what's called the 2020 vision. This campus is here right now because of the $80,000 that we raised through the 2020 vision giving from the Newport News campus, right? And so you all have, I would say, a responsibility, not just an opportunity to make sure that you can set aside the money that needs to be set aside for the campuses that are going to come. We hope at least one more is going to come by the end of 2020, if not two more. And, uh, and so we're hoping that you're going to find a way. So if you participated in it last year, you're done all the way through 2020. And, uh, but if you haven't, then let this be your year that you participate, and then, uh, and then you're good to go from there. So, hey, let me um, do a little intro here before we get into the, the, the message for uh, for tonight, I just want to set it up a little bit this way. I, you know, Newport News, there's some exciting things happening there. We're getting ready to move into North Riverside Baptist Church, which we call NRBC. I know it's, it's huge for us. We've been officing there since 2011. 
And, uh, and so they voted recently for us to be able to move our weekend worship service and also our weekly youth service into that space. So it'll be the first time in the history of the church that we'll have access to a space 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's such, huge, it's such a huge thing for us. And so we're going to sign a 10-year uh, a lease with a 10-year uh, option to renew. So we're planning on being there for a long time. And, uh, and so, what, so part of that is I've started to maybe do some things with that church. And so I went to their Maundy Thursday service. How many of you know what that is? Then you grew up in a liturgical church like I did, right? I grew up in an Episcopal church. And so I went to their Maundy Thursday service, which is the service the Thursday before Easter. And it's called Maundy Thursday because Maundy, it comes from the Latin word mandatum, which gives us the word mandate, which is like, right, a command. And so it's called a Maundy Thursday service because on that night before Jesus' crucifixion the next day, he gave a command to his disciples that you find in John 13. And that command was that we're supposed to love one another the way that he has loved us. And the way that he began to demonstrate that command to his disciples in a practical way is that he got down on his knees and he began to wash their feet, which was unheard of 2,000 years ago for the master to wash the feet of the servants. But that's the kind of love that Jesus has called us to live. Not only was he teaching us about leadership, but he was teaching us about a cleansing that he was about ready to make possible through his death on the cross. If, you, if you're familiar with the story, right, he goes to wash Peter's feet, and what does Peter say? Peter says, yes or no? He says, no, right? He says, Lord, you're, you're not going to wash my feet, if any, right? Let me wash yours. And so he says to Peter, Peter, unless you let me wash your feet, you can't be clean. So Peter says, don't just wash my feet, wash what? Yeah, he says, wash all of me, right? And Jesus says, you know, sometimes you read things in the Bible and you're like, eh, I don't know if that's true, right? Or if I agree with that. He says, no, if I wash your feet, your whole body's clean. Now, how many of you have kids, little kids that play outside, right? Right? How many of you have said to your kid when they come in, right? They come running in from the outside and you know where they ran because there's a path, right? And they're, they're covered in dirt and you're like, I didn't even know we had that much dirt in our yard, right? I mean, where did you get all that dirt from? How many of you said to your child in that moment, it's okay, honey, you don't have to take a bath. Just rinse your feet off, you'll be okay. Just go sit on the new couch or climb in dad's car, right? You're fine. How many, right? Who's, who says that, right? It doesn't make any sense. Why, why would he say to Peter, you know, I, we just need to wash your feet? Because he wasn't talking about our physical body. And he wasn't talking about our, spiritual, our physical feet. He's talking about our spiritual feet. He was saying to the world, and he's saying to us today, he said, he's saying to Peter, if, if you come to the cross in a spiritual sense, because I'm going to die on that cross for your sin, which makes you unclean, if you come, meaning your will, you choose to come to the cross, which is your spiritual feet moving towards Christ. If you come to the cross and accept the forgiveness that I want to give to you, that all of who you are is going to be clean, Peter. Now, Peter didn't understand all of that in that moment. And as you begin to read through the book of Acts, you begin to see that they began to understand as the Holy Spirit began to open up the Old Testament to them. But that's what Jesus says to you and to me. He says, if you will come to the cross, you can be clean. If you would come and receive the forgiveness that I have for you. And some of us, I don't know about you, but when I look into my past, I'm like the little kid that played outside. How did I find that much dirt in the world? But yet I found it, and yet I'm cleansed from it 
not because I'm any better than I was when I was 23 when I made a vow of devotion to Christ, but because of the cleansing that only Jesus Christ can give to you. And to me, we're desperate for because we cannot clean ourselves. Just like the little kid that comes in from the outside, right? If you were to say to your child, go clean up, right? If they're little, they I, I know how to get dirty, but I don't know how to get clean. That's what you and I are in front of Christ. We don't know how to get clean, but he knows how to clean us in ways that we could never clean ourselves. We're desperate. We're, we're going to get to that end of the service tonight. We're desperate to come to the cross for the cleansing that he needs to give to us. But this is the other part of the story that we're going to lock into tonight as we dig into this, into this message, is that you and I have a responsibility to go explain that message to the world. Because when he was washing their feet, he wasn't just talking to them about the spiritual cleansing that they needed for their own heart. But by washing their feet, it was as though he was commissioning them to go out into the world and to tell the world about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This idea of good news, we've been in a series since January in Newport News and in Williamsburg called the Good News Series or the Gospel So let me just read you a couple of verses. These actually come out of Isaiah because the idea of the good news that we need to understand and that we need to take to the world, it doesn't begin in the what's called the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the four biographical books about the good news of the life of Jesus. The good news actually begins in the Old Testament. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. This is one of the reasons why Jesus washed their feet, because the disciples would have understood, they would have known about this verse. When he bent down to wash their feet, it was about cleansing, but it was also about commissioning. And they were being commissioned to bring the good news of Jesus to the world. What does it say in verse 7? The good news of peace and salvation, Isaiah 52, 7, the good news that the God of Israel Reigns. Now listen to Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. So this word gospel, which we translate as good news, it appears 20 times in the four gospels. And then it appears another 77 times all the way through the book of Revelation. So we know, right, that God is saying, hey, I'm going to keep putting this in here because I want you to understand it's important for you to know. It's important for you to know how it works for you, and it's important for you to realize that you've been commissioned to take it to the world. This word gospel comes to us from the original Greek. It's the Greek word euangelion, which gives us the word evangelist, which means the one who brings good news. And back in the days when they talked in King James, right, in Old English, the word that they they used to translate euangelion was actually called God's spell because God meant good and spell meant news. And so they just made up a word. They put these two words together and that was God's spell. And that word has evolved over time. And that's how We've gotten the word gospel. It's simplified, and that's the word that now is in most Bibles today, or sometimes you'll hear it as good news. So let me read you another verse. This is out of Acts 20, 24. It says, But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. What's this work? It's the work of what? Telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Revelation 14, 6 through 7. I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but if you're a note taker, you can write that down. Revelation 14, 6 through 7. It refers to the good news as being eternal. I like that. 
Because that's part of our message as a church, right? Our message statement is, is heaven, for, heaven now, heaven forever. Meaning that we don't want to just be in this life after we've made a vow of devotion to Christ, waiting for eternity to start for us. We have stuff that we're supposed to do here. And part of what we're supposed to do here is to tell other people about where they're supposed to be after they die. So heaven now, heaven forever. God wants you to experience, when you begin to give your life fully to the work that God has for you, you have a purpose, he created you for a reason, and when you begin to give yourself to that, there's a sense of fulfillment that comes to you that I think is a foretaste of the heaven that's to come. So we like to say at City Life that, that, that heaven isn't, eternal life isn't just measured on the time continuum, right? It's measured on the depth continuum. It's a life that's both full and forever. And the people around you and the world that you live in is desperate to learn that. For themselves. So that's a little bit of a setup because what we're going to do tonight is that we're going to look into the Old Testament and, and find a place where God gave us a glimpse into the good news that would one day be revealed in the New Testament. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to what's to come through the life of Christ. I had another message that I was going to teach, but then this teaching that I did last weekend at Newport News has been so much of my heart. I was like, okay, we're going to do it again. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I keep enjoying it every time I look at it. So, you know, back this is, this is a big night for us because when, when we were getting ready to move here, it was in the summer of 2007. We didn't actually move here until uh, October of 2007. But when, when we were planning to come, we had already decided to come. We had gotten word that uh, a family that was part of City Life back then when they meeted in the movie theater uh, over off of, uh, off in, uh, across from Kiln Creek, there was a young Navy family that had a baby that was in crisis, that was born in crisis, and they weren't sure whether or not their child was going to live. It was the Knoss family, if you remember them, and uh, Sweet family, and uh, they live out on the West Coast now. And uh, anyway, so we, I came down. I was like, I want to go visit that family in the hospital. So we drove from Richmond. I drove from Richmond. Uh, it was late in the night, and, and uh, uh, they had, had stepped away to go get something to eat. And so uh, I, uh, they let me on to the naval base. I'm still not quite sure how I got in there in the middle of the night, right? You, you start saying clergy, right, and doors open for you. I felt like Peter being released from prison, except I was going in instead of coming out. Doors were opening, and guards were asleep. It was beautiful. And so I, I, I was able to talk the, the, the nurse on station to, to let me back into the NICU unit uh, to pray with, the, with this child, this infant. And, uh, and as I was coming home, I, uh, I just wanted to explore a little bit in the area. I was kind of doing a prayer drive as I was coming back to Richmond. And I, and I came down Route 17 and stopped at the Exxon station just up the road here to get gas. And it was at that place where God spoke to me and said, City Life is going to be here. On the in Suffolk one day, and uh, and so this is the fulfillment, you know, of that moment where I felt like God spoke to me, and so the the uh, the leaders of Sigil Life have been praying into that revelation of God for a long time, and so it's exciting to see it fulfilled, and uh, and God has more things that He wants to speak to us, and He might be speaking to you about ministries that are supposed to start and things that you're supposed to be involved in. So being here tonight is is powerful for us uh, because it, it's it's a it's a great picture that God keeps His promise. So whatever you're facing, if you feel like God's given you some promise, it might take some time for it to be fulfilled, but it's coming. Come on. you got to stand in a place of faith. So, so in the, 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 uh, the first summer, so we came in October of 2007, and, uh, and we were uh, finished our first several months of, of, of pastoring, 
and, and we were coming up on to the summer of 2008, and I knew I wanted to do a series for the whole summer. So I was joking with the Newport News campus last week, and I was telling the story that I felt like God spoke to me about what the summer series was supposed to be. And, uh, and so I went to say to Vanessa, I said, hey, I really feel like God spoke to me about the series. And, she, and she's like, well, what's it going to be? I said, we're going to do a series on the minor prophets, and I'm going to call it They Still Speak. And she laughed, and she said, no, come on, what, what's it really going to be? What are you going to do that series on, right? And I was like, no, it's going to be really good. So, and I thought it was great. Right? And the church survived, so it must have been okay. And it, it was actually in that series when we were preaching out of Hosea that, uh, that we had our first, I would say, our church-wide altar moment. And uh, the, the, um, the movie theater's not really set up for people to be in an altar, right? And so it was, you, you, you were there. It's, it's just so crowded in there. The aisles are small, and there's nothing really up front. People were standing in lines in the aisles. They were packed into the front, and people were just crying because God had moved on people's hearts. If you've never read the story of Hosea, it's such a powerful story of God's grace and his mercy and his love for us, even when we don't deserve it. And so that was a breakthrough moment that summer uh, for us. And so I want to just point to Amos, and that's going to kind of be our springboard. Some of you are like, Amos, who is that? Yeah, he's actually, there's a book in the Bible called Amos. And in Amos, he's one of the minor prophets. They're called minor prophets because their books are shorter than the major prophets. So major and minor is not by way of significance, but it's by the length of their writing. So in Amos, there are eight prophecies. There are three sermons. There's five visions and five promises, all in this little book. And we're going to take a, just a quick look at a part of one of his visions. So if you want to turn to Amos, you can look at chapter 9. Verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. Now, this is important. We're going to cue in on that in just a minute. He said, Strike the tops of the temple columns. Now, there were two temple columns. As you walked up these steps to go into the holy place, there was a column. If I was standing looking out, there's Boaz. The, the columns are named in the Old Testament, right? Which means strength. And then there's Jachin, which means he will establish. And so he's talking about striking these two columns. They were massive. And it says, strike the columns so that the foundation will shake. Bring down the roof on the heads of the people below. I will kill with the sword those who survive. No one will escape. Right? There's some violence. There's, a, there's an angry side to God that's the judgment of who he is. Now, what's important is you read this text in Amos, which is one of the reasons I, I love this teaching, is because if you read through the Bible too fast, you miss this stuff, right? So to, you don't want to read the Bible every day to just to check something off to say, I read today. You want to read with an expectation that the Holy Spirit wants to show you something, right? In fact, when you read, you should say, God, what do you want me to see today? Holy Spirit, I, I want to learn from you today. Show me something. And I remember reading this years ago for the first time and thinking to myself, if God is standing at the altar, then it means he's not where he normally is, right? And so let's just, these steps are perfect, right? So, so let's picture this right here is the holiest of holies, right? And in this room is the Ark of the Covenant. And, and, and as you come out of there, there's this thick curtain that separates it. You come into this long rectangular room that's called the holy place. Now in the holiest of holies, the high priest can only go in there. How many times can he go in there? Once, right? Once a year, just one person in all the world was allowed to go in there on the Day of Atonement, right? And so, and, and then in the, in the holy place, you would have 
certain priests were allowed in there. And that's where the, the, the altar of incense was, the shoe bread, and the, the, uh, the oil lamps were all in here. And then as you came out of the holy place, you would come onto this portico, these massive steps, and there's Boaz, and there's, there's Jacob. And you come down the steps into this courtyard, and in this courtyard was a massive altar, right, where they did all the, and it was a bloody place. That's where they killed all the animals, and that's where their sacrifices were done, and there was a big basin that was there. And so in Amos's vision, where is God, right? It says that he's at the, he's at the altar, right? So he's standing here at the altar at the place of judgment. And then when you read about God in the Old Testament in the temple, he's usually in here, isn't he? Right? He's in the holiest of holies. That's why only one person's allowed to go in there once a year because that's where the literal presence of God is. Now, in Amos' vision, he's not in there. He's out here. When you have a vision of God, you don't want to see him at the place of judgment. You want to see him at the place of mercy. You with me? Now, how many of you have ever said to your kids this? Don't make me get up and come over there. Anybody ever said that to your children? You guys haven't yet because she's still really sweet, right? But it's coming, right? Don't, don't, don't make me get up and come over there, right? Some of you said that to your kids just today. Just today, right? I heard that from my parents a lot when I was growing up. That's the picture that you're supposed to see here. This God had been saying to Israel for decades, don't make me get up and come over there. Don't make me get up and come over there. They were worshiping false gods. They were beginning to forsake all the sacrifices. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. They, and it had gotten so bad, you know what God did? He got up and he went over there. He got up from the place of mercy and he was standing at the place of judgment. What does he say? The roof is going to fall down on the heads of the people below. This is what you just shouted at your child, right? I will kill with sword those who survive. No one will escape. That's a mom having a bad day, right? Nobody's getting out of here alive, right? The, the language matches his position. He's at the place of judgment because they kept refusing his mercy. When you go back into the holiest of holies, if we could travel back in time, and if we were allowed to go in there and our faces didn't melt off like they did in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? If we could actually go in there and take the top off of the Ark of the Covenant, inside of it, you would find a few things. You'd find a bowl with some manna in it, right? You'd find Aaron's staff, which had blossomed supernaturally with these almond blossoms. And you would also find some tablets that had the what on there? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments represented the contract. That's why it was called the Ark of the Covenant, because it was the box that contained the terms of the agreement that God had entered into with a nation. When you bought your house, you, you signed some documents, some paperwork, right? It's the agreement that you entered into with the bank about the terms of, of that relationship, right? It's the same way with the Ten Commandments. God was saying, these are the terms of our agreement. Now, what's interesting is that God knew that they were never going to be able to live up to those terms, ever. See, the, the law and the Ten Commandments represent the perfection of God, and they represent the imperfection of man. It represents the perfection of God, 
and it represents the imperfection of man. And they're in that box, not because God wanted to continually remind people of how rotten they were. They were in that box because God wanted to continually remind people how desperate they were for his mercy. And if the activity that's supposed to be taking place at the altar isn't happening, then God's not able to stay on the place of mercy where we need him to be. Now listen to this out of Exodus 37. We're going to read out of two different translations. Amy, when we shared this teaching last weekend, the the young adults were loving it because you had just taught on that that Friday night about how you have to read out of multiple translations. Like, she's setting me up for Saturday, and she doesn't even know it. So we're going to read out of the New Living Translation. Then we're going to read out of the New American Standard because they're completely different in a significant way. So this is out of the New Living Translation, which is the one that I read the majority of the time in my own personal reading. So it says, Then he made the ark's cover, The place of atonement. That's the name of the cover. The name of the cover is the place of atonement. And then we're going to find there's another name that's given to it in the New American Standard. Both names are right, and I'm going to explain why that is. You're supposed to make it of pure gold. It was 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. He made two cherubim from hammered gold and placed them on the two ends of the atonement cover. And he molded the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all one piece of gold. So the top of the Ark of the Covenant, right, this lid is, is hammered out of gold. And there's two angels, angelic beings that are formed and carved up out of this top. And it's just one huge piece of gold. The cherubim faced each other and they looked down on the atonement cover with their wings spread above it. It says they protected it. That part's a poor translation because they weren't protecting it because there's nothing of God that needs protection. Now let me read it of the New American Standard. We get the other name for the place of atonement for this cover and then they actually tell us what's really happening. Let me read it again, verse 6. He made a mercy seat, right? So it's called the place of atonement, and it's also called the mercy seat. And these are interchangeable. We're going to talk about why that is. He made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. And the one cherub at one end and one cherub on the other end, he made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat, with the mercy seat at the two ends. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces toward each other. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat, right? The New American Standard is one of the most literal translations of the original Greek, right? So the New Living Translation kind of reads some interpretation into the text that doesn't belong there. Because the original text, this is in the Hebrew, it just, it just speaks of their direction by which they faced. It, it, it doesn't say anything about protection. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for seat and the word for cover are exactly the same. They're the same word. Seat and cover are the same. So that's why, over time, it became known to the Jewish people as the mercy seat because it was the cover that covered the Ark of the Covenant. Does that make sense? Now, the reason why it's called a cover or the mercy seat it's, and the angels are there looking down, it's not because it was being protected. It's a prophetic picture of what God does for you and for me with his mercy. He does not take away our ability to sin. He, he, he does not go back and rewrite the story of your past. 
When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, he doesn't, right? And what was it, men in black, where they have that neat little wand that they just hold up in front of your face and ding, and you don't remember anything? How many people had that happen to you, right? No. There's times where you look into your past, I bet you're like me, and you still feel shame for the things that you did because it's still there. See, God's mercy doesn't rewrite history. He doesn't take away your, your ability to be tempted. What his mercy does is that it covers your sin. See, the picture of the Ark of the Covenant, it's called the mercy seat because those Ten Commandments, they represent you and me. It represents our imperfection. The beauty of God's mercy is that he's hiding our sin as if it doesn't exist. That's what mercy does. Mercy covers. Mercy covers. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, forgiveness covers all that you have ever done so that you can be in right relationship with God again, which is why it's also called the place of atonement because atonement's a fancy word for being at one with God. You see, when you receive the mercy that God wants to give to you, he covers your sin, and by covering your sin, it makes it possible for your relationship with him to be restored and the sense of separation that you used to have with him goes away. Now, I know that probably Vanessa and I have, are the only married couple here that's ever been in a conversation with each other, right? Some of you had a conversation on the way over here, right? And when you're having one of those kinds of conversations, you feel a sense of separation. And that's the beauty of reconciliation is that it's not just dealing with the facts of the argument. It's about restoring the sense of connectedness that a married couple is supposed to feel with each other at a heart level. You might be at odds with your child. It's any type of love relationship. It could be with a friend. It could be somebody in your community, your neighborhood. It could be your workplace. That when you have an argument, there's a, there's a sense of separation. And then when you work it out, there's a sense of restoration of relationship. When you and I make a vow of devotion to Christ, one of the things that's supposed to happen is the feeling of separation that we used to have with God goes away. And we feel that we're at one with him again. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've earned it. It's because his mercy covers your sin. That's why the, the high priest was the only person that could go in there, and he could go only go in there once a year because it was a prophetic picture of the holiness and the perfection of God, and it was a prophetic picture of the brokenness of mankind. You and I were desperate to be in his presence, and the greatest longing that God has was for us to be there with him, but his holiness demands judgment. And that's why the altar is important in this picture. You see, if the activity that's supposed to be happening at the altar is taking place, then it enables God to stay where he is so mercy can be given to the world. At least that's how it was in the Old Testament. All of that is pointing to one person. The person that, whose resurrection we just celebrated a few weeks ago. See, when Jesus died on the cross for you and for me, he became the eternal activity at the altar once and for all. So God would never have to get up from the mercy seat ever again. Because now the world is not dependent upon a system of sacrifice. That whole system of sacrifice was incomplete but it was perfect in the prophetic picture that it was in helping us to understand what Jesus would one day do. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he made it possible for God to stay on the seat of mercy. And when he washed the disciples' feet, he was saying to them, you can now go to that place that it used to be that no one could get to because I'm here and my death will stand for all of time as the final death for all the sin for all the world. And now you can get to the place to find the mercy that you're desperate to find. See, it's called the, the mercy seat because God has a perfect plan to cover your sin. It's called the place of atonement because God has the perfect plan for your relationship with him to be restored. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What makes everlasting life possible is the mercy of God that is free to the world because of the price that Jesus paid. But can I just say to you that mercy does not come without responsibility. We like the story of mercy, don't we? Right? We, we, we like this message on mercy because there's something inside of us that's desperate for it because, like me, you have a past, and the longer we've lived, the more of a past we have, Right? That's why the woman was a cart with adultery, and Jesus said, he who's without sin can cast the first stone. Who started leaving first? Yeah, the people that had lived the longest, right? Because they had the most sin to remember. We amass quite a record of sin against ourselves, don't we, throughout our days? So we like this idea of mercy. But mercy does not come without responsibility. Mercy is not permission for you and for me to now go into the world and say, doesn't matter. Jesus died on the cross for every sin that I've ever committed. And in fact, I'm going to help make his sacrifice more meaningful by tallying up my need for right? Is that what mercy is about? That's not what God's mercy and grace is about. God's mercy and grace is now for us to overcome the brokenness of our life, which we'll never fully do, but can we just say, let's get a little farther along than we are today. We're not ever going to be perfect, but, but let's make some progress. Let's just make some progress. I think mercy comes with the responsibility for us to make progress in our own personal life and then also to get busy doing the work of telling the world this story of how mercy works and how it happens and why it's possible. All right, so let me jump to Exodus 30 because there's some other great parts in here that help us to understand. So we, so we look at the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and, and the mercy seat, the place of atonement, to help us understand the mercy that comes to us. And then if you back up a little bit and you get back into Exodus chapter 30, you begin to understand another prophetic picture that's tied to the prophetic picture that we just found in the book of Amos that helps us understand this idea of responsibility. Exodus 30, verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, collect choice spices, 12 and a half pounds of myrrh, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant calamus, 12 and a half pounds of cassia, as measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel, right? They had old school scales, right? It's like a balance that 
it's like on a, it's like a seesaw, right? And they would have the, the, the temple weights would be the true weights. And so they would know how much something weighs by giving it by, by way of comparison. It's measured by the weight of a sanctuary shekel. Also, one gallon, right? One gallon of olive oil. Like a skilled incense maker, blend these ingredients to make a holy anointing oil. Use this sacred oil to anoint the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, which we just talked about, the table and all the utensils, which were in the holy place, just outside the holiest of holies, the lampstands, they were in the holy place as well, and all of its accessories, the incense altar, that's in the holy place, the altar of burnt offerings, that's what we just talked about, right, that was in the courtyard once you came down the steps, path through Boaz and Jacob, right, the, the, uh, the, the altar for the burnt offerings and the utensils and the wash basin with its stand. Consecrate them to make them absolutely holy, After this, whatever touches them will also become holy. Let's keep reading. Verse 30. Anoint Aaron and his sons also, consecrating them to serve me as priests. And say to the people of Israel, this holy anointing oil is reserved for me from generation to generation. It must never be used to anoint anyone else. You must never make any blend like it for yourselves. It is holy. And you must treat it as holy. Any, listen to what God says. Anyone who makes a blend like it or anoints someone other than a priest will be cut off from the community, which means they'll be excommunicated. All right, God, like this is serious business to God, right? He's like, don't you make this? Don't you use it? Because the only time that you're going to be around it is when you come to the temple. That's the only time you're going to smell it. This, this unique fragrance, the only time you're going to be exposed to it is when you come to the temple. And God was saying, if anybody breaks this rule, you're out. No second chances. You're done. Excommunication was one step beneath capital punishment in the Mosaic Law, right? You, would, you could be murdered for, right? You could be put to death. If you've read through the Old Testament, you're right. There were a lot of people dying, right? And then if you weren't going to be put to death, the next one down is you'd be put out from the community, ex, excommunicated. God's saying you'll be excommunicated if you, if, you, if you break this rule. Now, why was God so uptight about this anointing oil, right? What, what, what difference does it make? Because everything in the Old Testament is pointing to, right, Jesus. And when you begin to mess with God's prophetic story, it's serious business for him. It doesn't have anything to do with this oil being important. It's not like it was a secret recipe that only he and the angels knew about and he didn't want it to get out, right? We're reading this and we're thinking, why Why was it so serious? Because the picture that it's supposed to be for us was supposed to be kept for thousands of years so we could come to a place just like we're at tonight and talk about it. He wanted the story that it was to be preserved for what it was supposed to teach us. Matthew 3, verse 8. Gotta love John the Baptist. Listen to what he says. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Powerful, isn't it? Prove by what? The way you live, by the choices that you make, by the words that come out of your mouth. 
how you treat your husband or how you treat your wife or how you treat your kids when they run into the house and they're all dirty and they don't know how to clean themselves. In your conversations that you had on the way here and that you're going to pick back up that's waiting for you in your car when you get back in there. Some of you are like, thank God, Pastor preached on mercy because I need some of that today. Mercy comes with responsibility. And John the Baptist says, prove that you have repented by the way that you live. By the way that you live. We have four numbers that are important to us at City Life. They're called the 1, the 6, and the 12, and the 24. I don't know where Juice is headed with his message after you all get out of this welcome series, but we're going to, I think, when we get out of the good news series, that we're going to go back into a series on discipleship. And, and for us, discipleship is born out of this model that we've created as a church. The one is the invitation that he gives to you and to me that we find in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ or imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? This is this part of you've, you've got to change the way that you live when you make a vow of devotion to Christ. So you begin this journey of transformation. That's the invitation. Then there are six commands that we teach that Jesus gives, and all of his teachings trace themselves back to these six foundational commands. And then the way that you, you obey those commands are through what we call 12 pathways, which are like spiritual disciplines, right? So when I accept the one, I have to obey the six, and I obey the six by walking in the 12. And when I walk in the 12, I become the 24. That's the fourth number. And these 24 are 24 virtues, and I want to read them to you. Authentic, content, hospitable, truthful, persevering, wise, hopeful, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, and kind, gentle, faithful, humble, grateful, merciful, honorable, principled, selfless, fervent, forgiving, believing, and self-control. 24 virtues. They come from what's called what Dr. George Wood, a great modern-day scholar of our lifetime, he calls the five great growth lists of the Bible. One of them is the Sermon on the Mount, the eight Beatitudes. And when you take these five great growth lists and take out the redundancy and the repetitiveness, you, you end up with these 24 virtues. It's a powerful list, isn't it? So when I accept the one, I have to obey the six, and I obey the six by walking in the 12. And when I walk in the 12, I become the 24. There are times as a church where we talk about things that you're not supposed to do, but not a whole lot. You know why? Because we believe as a devoted follower of Christ, if you get busy doing the things that you are supposed to do, it displaces the desire of the things that you're not supposed to do. As you fill your life with the things that God's called you to do, it begins to displacing the stuff that just doesn't belong. There's no room. It pushes it out. So we preach a lot on the doing and the doing are the 12 pathways. That's the activity of our discipleship model. So let me read you out of Second Corinthians, read to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2. Listen to this. Exodus 30 is pointing to this moment where the Holy Spirit was going to inspire the Apostle Paul to write these words. 2 Corinthians 2:14. But thank God that he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance 
rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, these are people that have rejected God's mercy. To those that are perishing, it is a dreadful smell of death and doom, right? Because it reminds them of the mercy that they've rejected, which they know that judgment's one day coming for that. But to those who are being saved, listen to this, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? None of us, because we're imperfect. But God is perfect. And when you make a vow of devotion to Christ and you become the benefactor of his mercy that's only made possible because of the activity of Jesus' death at the altar for all eternity, the Spirit of God that was once kept behind the veil in the holiest of holies now can come and live actually inside of us. That's why in John 14, Jesus says, and at that day, what day is he talking about? The day of his resurrection, the day of his death. At that day, you shall know that I am in my Father and that you're in me and I'm in you. He says, we're gonna, I'm going to be in you, inside of you. See, we're not able to be these 24 virtues. We're able to do the pathways, right? God doesn't read your Bible for you. You've got to actually open it up and sit down. And t- you've got to do that. There's no pinch runner for church, Right? Derek plays, plays varsity ball for a local school, and there's this one guy. He needs a pinch runner every time he gets on base. He's a big boy. He can hit that ball a long way, but he can't run. You know what he gets? He gets a pinch runner. You don't get a pinch runner for church. You actually have to show up. You don't get a pinch runner for your turn to work in the nursery, right, serving. When the offering plate comes, you don't give out of the purse of the person next to you while they're not looking, right? You gotta, the pathways are what you do, right? The virtues are what the Holy Spirit does in you when through the pathways you make your life spiritually fertile. And those virtues, they have a fragrance to them. You see, this fragrance that we read about in Exodus is serious business because it was never about the oil. It was about what the oil would one day represent, which was a prophetic symbol of the Holy Spirit that would one day be in us. And when the Holy Spirit is in you, you're supposed to smell a certain way that's different from any other character in the world. So it was a few weeks ago, Paige Dearman, if you've met Kate, Paige and Kelby, who go to the Newport News Campus, she's one of our service coordinators there at the Newport News Campus. She found a purse that someone had left after service. We were, we were one of the last people to leave the building, and, and, uh, and she looked over and said, huh, there's, it was over in the youth, the youth sit to this side over here. And, and uh, she said, there's a purse over there. And, uh, and, and I said, well, let's go get it, and, and uh, let's see if we can figure out whose it is. So she brings it over, and, and uh, I said, well, you should, why don't you open it up and look in there and see if you can. She's like, I don't want to open it up. I was like, well, Paige, how are we going to figure out who it belongs to? If you don't look in there, look in there. You might, might be a, a Bible, right, with somebody's name uh, in there. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of myself because I did not use the word pocketbook. I get in trouble. When Vanessa's like, it's not a pocketbook. Could you stop saying that? Right, so I'm, I'm trying to use purse, right, or bag, right, or bag. So she's not even in here for me to get credit. Somebody tell her, okay? Oh, there she is. She's in the back. Okay. All right. So, so I, I say, why don't you go look in there? And, and so I said, or there could be a phone in there, and you could turn it on, and, right, and we, we can figure out. Because whoever's lost that, they want to know, right, that we found it. Because they're probably looking for it right now. So she's like, all right, all right, I'm going to do it. And so she opens it up. So I go back to, 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 uh, to, to talking with her I was talking to. And I look over, and her face is like inside the purse. Like in there. And I realized she's smelling the purse. I was like, Paige, what are you doing? Right? She's like, 
this smells like your daughter, Claire. I was like, you're taking service coordinating to a whole new level, right? Right? Now there's going to be an olfactory sense test, right? Can you recognize these smells, right, before you can become a service coordinator? Sure enough, I said, give me that. I look in there, it's full of all of Claire's stuff, right? So this is my daughter's, this is her, this is her perk. When somebody picks you up, what do you smell like? When you're at work with the people that are there who know you and you're not with the people who know you're here, what do you smell like? If you're on the ship, if you're in the Navy, what do you smell like? When you're at the water cooler with all your buddies on a break, what do you smell like? When you're at the computer and no one else knows what you're looking at, what do you smell like? If you're a teenager and you're hanging out with your friends at a sleepover and all the grown-ups have gone to bed, what do you smell like? When someone mistreats you or hurts your feelings or offends you in some way, the response that comes out of your life, what does that smell like? Because it's supposed to smell a certain way. It's supposed to smell like the fragrance of Christ. You see, this commission that we've been given to bring the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, the biggest witness that you're supposed to have is how you smell. It's the character that's supposed to be in you. Who you are as you walk through this world, the character that emanates from your life that should be defined by those 24 virtues is the fragrance of who you are, and that's the fragrance of the Holy Spirit inside of us. The only way that we can ever hope to be that fragrance is because of who Jesus is inside of us, and the only reason he is able to be there in us is because God is forever on the seat of mercy. I invite the worship team to come back up. Earlier in March, as we were getting ready for the big vote at North Riverside Baptist Church, because they, they, they had to vote as to whether or not they were going to invite City Life to come and, uh, and be there, uh, I went on a, a 15-day fast to just kind of fast and pray uh, for that vote, that it was going to be in our favor, that it was going to be in the, in the affirmative. It was a big decision for that church. And, uh, and so uh, on, uh, on March 8th, a Tuesday night, I was going down to City Hall. I'd do the, the opening prayer for the city council meeting. I'm in the rotation. I'd do it a couple of times a year. And, uh, and so I was heading downtown and, uh, at night, and I pulled up to an intersection in downtown Newport News, and uh, there was a guy standing on the corner on his phone, and, and, and he was motioning to me. He wanted me to roll down my window, and he was pointing at my tire. So, you know, so I cracked my window a little bit, and he says, hey, you, buddy, you need air in your tire. I was like, all right, thanks. He said, no. You need air right now in your tire. And so as I pulled away, you know, a tire that's about ready to get onto the rim has a really distinct squishy sound to it, right? I was like, great, my car's, I'm almost on the rim. And so I pull into the parking lot, and I think I'm just going to have to worry about it later. And so I've got to go in and do this prayer. Like, I've got my coat and my bow tie, and I'm looking the part, right, for the city council meeting. So, But I know when I come out, I'm going to have to deal with this flat tire on my, on my car. And so for this brief second, I think because we have AAA, I was like, I could just, you know, call AAA and wait for them to come. And I'm thinking my, my dad passed away about a year and a half ago. I was like, if I call AAA to change a tire on my car, my dad will come out of heaven and smack me, right? Right in this parking lot. They're like, boy, I didn't teach you how to change a tire. So you could, that's for your wife. That's not for you, son, right? 
And so I'm like, all right, so I'm going to change this tire. And so I take my jacket off, my bow tie, roll my sleeves up, and get all the parts out. I drive this little compact car, and the jack, right, looks like it came from Toys R Us. It is so tiny. So I'm cranking this thing up, and the car is, you know, barely moving. And so I get the car jacked up, and I, and I bend over to get the, uh, the, the lug wrench, and all of a sudden I get a little woozy, get a little dizzy. I'm thinking, I must be in a lot worse shape than I thought I was. So then I grab a hold of those lug nuts, right? And I don't know who the joker was that put them on there, but I think they do that, right, at the service station just to, oh, yeah, people like Alan, right? They turn the impact wrench all the way up, put that on there. I'm standing, standing on the lug wrench, bouncing with my hands on top of my car, breaking all these things loose. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to pass out. Everybody's going to come out of the city council meeting, and I'm going to be passed out in the parking lot, like bleeding from the back of my head where I fell down. They're going to be like, is this the pastor that just prayed for us, right? They're going to step over me. It's going to be like the parable of the Good Samaritan all over again. And then I had this, I had this revelation. I haven't eaten in seven days. No wonder I feel like I'm going to faint. My body's like, bro, if you want to fast, that's cool, but don't try to change a tire, right? You call AAA if you're fasting and you have to change a tire. Why am I telling you that story? Because there's times in your life where you have to make a decision about whether or not you're physically capable of doing something, right? You have to make that decision. And if I had been thinking in that moment, I would have made a decision to call someone because I would have realized I'm not physically capable to do this task. When you look at the story of your life and you see all the mistakes that you've made, all the sin that you've committed, can we just agree together None of us are capable of giving ourselves the mercy that we need. We cannot clean ourselves, but yet we're desperate for cleansing. So we find ourselves in this predicament. What will we do? Well, you got to do what people have been doing for 2,000 years. You got to find your way to the cross and receive the mercy that only God can give and experience the cleansing that can only come by His hand because of the death that Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. I just want to create a moment of privacy for people in this room. just want to invite you to bow your heads. Nobody's going to do anything weird. or I'm not going to ask you to do anything else either that you don't want to do. So if you're here tonight and you would look back into the story of your life and you would say, Fred, I... When I look into my past tonight, I, I see a lot of mistakes, but I don't know if I've ever really truly come to the cross. I, I can't find a moment. As I search my memory, I can't find a moment like you can find where you made a vow of devotion to Christ. I made a vow of devotion to Christ when I was 23, where I came and said to God, God, I know I can't fix myself. I, I need the forgiveness that only you can give. And, and in that moment, I promised I gave Jesus my life, and I've been living for him ever since. If you can't find a moment like that, and you would agree with me that you can't fix yourself, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand where you are. Just slip it up. If you would say, Fred, in here tonight, I just, I can't, I don't think there's a moment where I've accepted the forgiveness that God wants to give to me. Just slip it up right where you are. So let me ask you this question. If you would say, Fred, I know that my life probably doesn't smell like it's supposed to. My character needs some help. I'm actually missing some of the key ingredients off the list. If when you heard me reading that list of those 24 virtues, if there was a few that jumped out and you thought, wow, I don't know if I have any of that in my life. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand where you are. Just raise your hand. Yeah. 
So, Father, I pray for all these hands that are up all over this sanctuary tonight. And we come to you tonight because there's nowhere else we can go. It's, it's what Peter said to you, to whom else shall we go because you alone have the words of life. God, we are desperate for your mercy. Jesus, we acknowledge tonight that that mercy can only come to us because of the death that you died on the cross. And Holy Spirit, we say, fill us up to overflowing. And may it be, Holy Spirit, that because of your presence in us, that every single one of us, we're going to smell a little bit differently tonight and tomorrow and for the rest of our life because we're going to let the character that you want to see grow in us have its full effect that change us, transform us, and that we want to be the fragrance of Christ in the world that you have given us to live. In Jesus' name, come on, everybody said together, amen. Stand with me and let's sing this song as we close together. Through you, I can do anything, and I can do all things, because it's you who gives me strength. Nothing is impossible through you. Blind eyes are open. Strongholds are broken. 